Paper Quest Office Hours, where we take an in-depth look at a single topic or question that's on our mind. My name is Professor McBurney, and today I am just doing a brief Office Hours to answer a question that I saw, not, not really a question, but more an assumption that was made that often comes up in things like job rankings, as Professor often gets labeled as a... Uh, uh, a, a low effort job, which, you know, a, a lot of us might say that's a little bit far from the truth. So what exactly do professors do all day? The, the way this often gets framed is, and this of course depends on the university, depends on how many classes you teach at any given university, how large those classes are. But generally the idea is you teach maybe two classes a week, three classes a week, four classes a week at your university, what what do you do with the rest of your time? And, and in fact, some professors only teach one or even none. Like, what are they doing with their time? Well, teaching classes is, a, a depending on the type of professor you are at the university you're at, it may be a very, very small part of your job. Now, I should preface this by saying, Professor Sheriff and I are both teaching professors at UVA, or we would say teaching track professors. And to clarify what we mean by that, I will contrast that with tenure track. So a tenure track professor, and again, this varies from university to university, the exact balance, but generally a tenure track professor is judged on their research, how many publications they get out, what impact those publications have, how well known they are in the field, etc. Generally, when you take a tenure track job, you are put on a tenure clock that is typically six years long. Uh, and at the end of the six years, you are either promote and, and you start, I should say, at assistant professor, which I am also an assistant professor, but I'm assistant professor in, a, in the teaching track. The, the term at UVA is academic general faculty. But, but focusing on tenure track, you start at the rank of assistant professor. And at the end of uh, six years, you are evaluated by a promotion and tenure committee. This committee typically is um, university-wide. That is, there are members on the committee at, uh, in, in, not even in other departments, uh, often in other schools in a university. And they will evaluate the quality of your work, the quality of your reference letters, which are letters that you would get other people to write, typically from outside of the university, and, and they will determine if, they are con if you are considered basically an important, impactful person in your field. And if they feel that they are, uh, at least to the standards that that given university expects, which of course is going to vary uh, widely from university to university, then you get promoted to associate professor. And at that point, you have tenure. And the idea of tenure is that there has to be a due process to, to fire you if if anything comes up this you know basically the you would need to do something to get fired which you know you could imagine what type of offenses those would be and again that that can sometimes how how strictly that's enforced can vary not only from university to university but even state to state depending on state law um by contrast uh so that's tenure track typically at especially R1 universities, which was Professor Sheriff and I teach at the University of Virginia. It's an R1 university. There's a heavy, heavy, heavy emphasis 
on research, uh, if not a prohibitive emphasis on research. That is, things like teaching um, may not be evaluated as closely. It is, I would say, not uncommon at at several R one universities. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say I, I know of anyone at UVA that this applies to, but I, I have known some professors who do great research, but notoriously are not particularly effective teachers who make tenure despite that because they're fantastic researchers. So what is this research stuff? Uh, well, it turns out that we actually, Sheriff and I actually do this as well. We do research. We do research into pedagogical methods, and I'll talk more about that when we get to the teaching track faculty. But this really depends on uh, what your field is. So, you know, we're in computer science. A lot of our research is very dependent on the subfield. So I was in the subfield when I did my Ph.D., of software engineering, trying to produce insights into what programmers need in order to to understand a program, produce insights into what type of documentation is helpful, uh, as well as where documentation could be prioritized. That was my work. And the idea is I am doing novel work that is adding some insight to that field that wasn't there before. In computer science especially, this is typically published in the form of conferences as opposed to journals. Computer science is is fairly unique in that respect. In in most programs, you'd be looking for things like journal articles. Uh, You know, if you look at some of the conferences in computer science, especially something like uh, the International Conference of Software Engineering or ICSI, uh, it's actually more prestigious to often to get a paper into ICSI than it is to get it even into some of the uh, what we consider higher impact journals in in the same area. And so there's kind of a unique factor there. You know, you could argue that it's because of the speed of computer science. You could argue that maybe we as computer scientists need to change. There are people arguing that, that we need to go to more of a journal type model. Uh, But for now, we are we are heavily focused in conferences. That is generally where you know you're going to submit papers to conferences, and if they get accepted, they will be published. You will then present the paper at that conference. Ideally, this is an opportunity to network, to find those people who are going to write those letters of recommendations for you outside of the university, as I discussed before. People who can evaluate your work, you know, it, 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 who don't have an incentive, like they don't work with you, and they don't have some connection to you. They don't have some incentive to vouch for you beyond what you have contributed to the field. And the nice thing about conferences, and this this applies to Sheriff and I, we actually just got back uh, from what, what is SIGSI, which is uh, a computer science education conference, really big one. Um, we just got back from that, and you know, you you can get some really good insights there, but even just talking to people can kind of produce these ideas of, research directions you want to look at. And so I personally find that uh, I, I quite enjoy going to these conferences. Uh, after a while, my introversion kicks in and I need to spend the night hiding in my hotel room reading Mistborn, this oddly specific example of something that happened five days ago at the time of recording this. Overall, it's a great opportunity to network, great opportunity to kind of find new research ideas, see what other people are doing, look for areas of collaboration, etc. From there, journal papers, typically you submit a paper to a journal, and it's with journals, it's it's rarely accepted or rejected, at least with high-impact journals right out of the gate. Um, well, it can, it can certainly be rejected out of the gate, I would say. 
typically kind of the best case scenario on a first submission is something like accepted with major revisions, at which point the expectation is uh, the reviewers give some either feedback, criticism, suggestions, changes, whatever. You uh, then sent back to the author where they have an opportunity to kind of try to coordinate on that and then see if they can uh, appease the reviewer's concerns. They will then send it back. At that point, kind of the best case scenario is accepted with minor changes, at which point it's typically just a few things that if you change it, it doesn't go back to the reviewers. The editor just takes it, typically ensures that you actually handle the minor revisions, and then it can be published. And I've gone through this process both uh, as a reviewer and as a writer. To that end, what we often find in these types of environments is it can be pretty stressful to because conferences are incredibly competitive, um, especially the, the higher impact conferences. Sixy, thankfully, not as competitive, but it is still competitive. You do need to have a good paper that has, if not some novel insight, at least some insight that can be used to help improve uh, other teachers, maybe a re-emphasis. More and more, thankfully, and, and we talked about this on the podcast before, we're seeing a lot of conferences have a repeat experiment track to to verify experiments to see if indeed uh, their, their approach uh, is repeatable, which I, I think that is absolutely vital. And uh, for a long time, because of the focus on novelty, for, for good reason, understandably, but, but nonetheless, the, the overriding focus on novelty, I think, led to a lot of papers that had bald claims that, uh, upon reinspection, didn't work. And, and this happens in computer science. This happens in medicine as well, which is, uh, that's certainly a bit concerning. But that is the research side of things. And it turns out that tenure-track professors spend most of their time doing that. You'll, uh, I think at UVA, a typical breakdown for a junior faculty member is something like, 60% research, 30% teaching, 10% service, uh, which I'll talk about service in just a second. As opposed to uh, me on the teaching track, as well as Sheriff, my breakdown is 70 teaching, 20% service, and 10% uh, scholarship, which research is included in. What's the difference, though? So now, before we get into talking about service, let's let's now talk about what teaching track is. Now, of course... Something I need to preface is this doesn't exist at every university. There's a lot of universities that say we have a professor track that is for researchers and we have a lecturer track track and that is for teachers and, and nary the two shall meet. And in fact, I, I, I've taught at such a university before uh, specifically in computer science. We've seen a growth in the number of like teaching track professor positions. This is just due to the overall growth in the field in computer science since Around the time I graduated, so I graduated my bachelor's in 2010, the low point, I think, was 2009 post-dot-com collapse, and also, you know, there was there was the economic crisis at the time as well. Since then, it's almost quadrupled. Because of the growth in computer science, the nearly quadrupling in, what, 13 years? I mean, it's just absurd, that, that level of growth. You've seen departments really trying to hire a lot more teaching faculty, and and a way to incentivize that because because oftentimes with lecturers you might be year to year or or they might hire adjunct faculty who are not even full time who don't get benefits and you know thankfully we have 
at UVA, a, a full-time professor, multi-year contract position, we do focus on teaching. Now, you may think, okay, well, how, how you know, I'm, I'm teaching, for example, two sections a term, that is two lectures. So, you know, you might think, well, that's what, three hours or uh, six hours of lecture a week total? That, you know, what do you do with the rest of your time? The thing is, my class, this is the fewest students that I have been kind of overseeing since I've been at UVA, and I have 240 uh, in, in two sections. Uh, by contrast, last term in the classes that I was working in uh, was two separate courses, and, and effectively three separate courses. Uh, I had uh, over a 1,000 students that were in those courses. Big number, we'll say. That size does not scale like dropping off. And in fact, the more people you have, arguably the harder it gets to manage in terms of the amount of time that I find I end up spending per student can often on average start to go up. I spend a lot of time working with them, managing them, including helping with grading, uh, as well as handling grading disputes, spend a lot of time handling individual student emails, working with project teams. That is the teaching side of it. And, and last term, uh, with, between two classes, I did all of that, as well as for our intro programming class, I did things like create and manage the auto-grading tools that we use to, to help assist with grading. So, so there's a lot of work to be done in a class, even though the lecture is only that amount of time. And, and to be clear, you want to work on and refine the lectures. I mean, this is a college course. You want to spend a lot of time making it, ensuring that you're covering the learning objectives of the course, but from there, also building in good assignments. I can say that writing a good programming assignment takes me about two weeks. Not, not full time, obviously, but it takes about two weeks because I will work on it for a few hours and then I'll need to sit on it for a bit, test it out with some TAs, ensure the directions are clear and unambiguous, get it out to students, monitor for questions, etc. To be clear, I fully uh, know that that two sections is, is actually fairly small. So, for example, uh, I do know that there's like smaller, for example, liberal arts schools or, or, or schools with smaller class sizes where the teaching faculty would be expected maybe to do like four courses in a term. Uh, again, given our class sizes, it sort of balances out because if you think about it, I have four classes of 60. I just teach in, you know, two sections. You, you, you know, you can imagine it that way. From there, teaching is evaluated, unfortunately, by teaching evaluations. And the reason I say unfortunately is there's frankly a lot of known problems with teaching evaluation. Right out of the gate, they're, they're generally biased in favor of people the student expects to see, which, which typically, especially in, in STEM, takes the form of a, a, a white man or an Asian man. Uh, it, it is certainly biased against non-native English speakers, even, even proficient second language English speakers. They get, they get hurt on evaluation. Oftentimes, it can evaluate things that don't really improve student learning, like humor, or especially with, with women, uh, appearance, which is, I, I know, very gross, but we're talking about the flaws with student evaluations here. That's a really big one. Further, there's things that are known, like if the student does the evaluation after the final exam, the evaluation is more a rating of how difficult the exam is than about how effective the course was. You know, you, there's a lot of work going into like other ways to try to evaluate teaching things like, hey, what 
what curriculum have you created? What assignments have you created? What are your exams, etc.? Um, you might have peer reviews. So peer review would be uh, another instructor watching your lecture and evaluating uh, your lecture in that way. Overall, teaching evaluations, student evaluations, play a substantial, if not prohibitive, role in evaluating teaching effectiveness, which, again, is flawed. Uh, a side story is that there was a course I taught where there was a substantial amount of cheating. Close to a third of the class cheated on one assignment. Evaluations, when I when I checked in the mid-semester, students were happy with the course. After that, my reviews tanked because I caught the cheating. And, and to be clear, like it was, it was very unambiguous cheating. It wasn't like, oh, these, these two pieces of code are similar. It was copy and paste, many times not even changing the name. My evaluation suffered as a result of that. To be clear, I, I'm not saying that teaching evaluations are, are useless. Uh, and I think the qualitative feedback can often be very helpful. Uh, when students leave it, although I have also uh, had a student write on an evaluation that they hope I burn in hell alone. And it's always that last word that gets me alone, like not even not even Stalin, j just me. All right, cool. That is unusual, certainly, but it's not as unusual as you might think. I usually get two to five comments like that in, in every class I teach. Even when I get very good evaluation, you know, again, due to the advantages I have is a lower bar for me to clear than others. And I, and I, and, and I don't say that to, to at all praise myself, but just to say, again, the flaws that are kind of inherent. From there, we have service. Service is uh, can be made up of a few things. So one, it could be committees. These could be committees within your department. These could be committees within your college or within your university. These could be national committees. This could be reviewing for journals, conferences, grant proposals. You know, so for instance, I review for the SIGSI, the conference I just attended. I, I also have reviewed for uh, a few software engineering conferences and journals. Typically, that involves reading the paper, trying to provide meaningful, and when I say criticism, it, I don't inherently mean negative, but just like looking at the experiment they design with a critical eye. Does the experiment, is the experiment well designed? Does the experiment output accurately reflect the the conclusions the author are drawing? Does the experiment actually test the things that the authors are suggesting that they uh, are testing? The service is really broad. It can, again, be within your department. It could be national service. Sheriff has been the general chair of SIGSI a couple of times, which uh, to my understanding meant he didn't sleep is, is I believe the accurate measure of that. And so, yeah, they put in a ton of work for that. That certainly counts as service. So now going back a bit to research, let's talk about grant writing. One of the things that research professors need very often are grad students. And the primary means of paying for grad students are through acquiring funding from outside of the university. Oftentimes this could come from the government, like, uh, the National Science Foundation, NSF, or Department of Defense, DOD, or any, any other number of grant allocating uh, platforms. There's, for example, the NSF Career Award, which is a pretty significant amount of money, and that money goes to paying grad students. But not just paying them their stipend, it goes to things like uh, paying their tuition waiver. Because if you have a grad student in your lab, not only is that a job for them, it, it, it's also an assistantship 
And part of that assistantship is, you know, they don't pay for the classes that they're taking or they don't pay, pay for the, you know, resources that they're using at the university because they're doing work for the university. This can also pay for things like uh, lab equipment. You know, th this, this of course, varies a lot depending on what you're researching. But for instance, if you're doing a lot with distributed systems or machine learning at a large scale, you may need to buy specialized computer equipment. Chemistry labs may need to buy special equipment. Medical schools, special equipment. That has to be paid for typically out of grant funding. And oftentimes it's not, you know, there's also an overhead associated with the grad students. So let's say you have a grad student, you have, say, a $30,000 tuition waiver, you pay them like a $30,000 a year stipend. Well, you'll probably have to pay some another amount on top of that, depending on the school and things like that, in an overhead cost. So it, it, it can total up very quickly. Also, how do you get to conferences? Where does that money come from? It comes from grants. Now, typically at a, in a research position in R1, you will be given what's called a startup package. That is uh, potentially an initial lump sum of money or maybe the, you know, an initial annual amount of money. And you use that money for your initial grad student recruitment, your initial conference travel, etc. But ultimately, professors, especially in research, spend a lot of time writing grants, uh, trying to get money. And to be clear, this is not some of you might be thinking early 90s with the guy with like the, the question mark outfit who said free money from the government. Like NSF is something it's, it's below a 20 percent acceptance rate for grants. And it's not just any like Tom, Dick and Sue off the street writing it. Th these are professors writing these grant proposals. It is low. They are very competitive and it's very often a winner take all system. From there, though, you can also get funding from private industry. This is especially uh, pretty common in computer science. For example, uh, you might have something from, say, like IBM or Microsoft or any other number of uh, software developing companies that are you know, looking for ways to improve their process in, in the case of software engineering or, um, you know, my I, my roommate in grad school did computer vision work, which is starting to play a big role in things like self-driving cars, autonomous vehicles. So all of that are things that professors do. And the difference between going back to tenure track versus non-tenure track in our case is just that our emphasis is more geared towards teaching and our definition of scholarship is a little bit broader, too, I would say. For instance, uh, as far as the scholarship that I do, it tends to be focused on curriculum development. That's really where my interests lie in trying to develop new course materials, share them, get other people to use them, you know, see see if other people are using them, etc. Overall, I, I do enjoy doing that. I admittedly got a bit burned out on what would be considered traditional research by the end of my PhD. And, and some of that is disenchantment with uh, p-hacking, uh, which we've which we've talked about on the show before. Some of that is conferences have gotten so competitive that if you write a bad paper, it won't get accepted. If you write a good paper, it has a chance of being accepted. But that chance is borderline random in the most competitive uh, conferences to where you can do everything right and not have a paper accepted. And I know that sounds like I, I'm either making that up or I'm, you know, trying to justify papers that haven't been accepted to conferences, etc. But it this is not uh especially in computer science right now, this is not like an unusual opinion to have. On top of that, because we're not done yet, 
We have faculty meetings. I have TA meetings. I have advising meetings. I meet twice a week uh, or once a week for two different teams for a senior design project, an undergraduate project that I'm overseeing that is uh, producing real software for real customers. So I'm, I'm helping to act as sort of an advisor on that, providing some guidance into development and providing some guidance into like what kind of tools that they might want to use, but also just monitoring progress, ensuring that's working. My days are busy. My days are very busy. Somewhere in there, I also read some papers. But overall, yeah, I mean, we, it definitely is not something where we just sit around all day, you know, just waiting for class, playing video games on our computer. We don't do that. We, we, have, we have a lot of work to do, especially with the class sizes we have. With that, thank you all very much for listening to this edition of Office Hours. And check us out, regraderequest.com. You can find us on Anchor. I'm not going to get the whole sheriff thing down. Regraderequest.com. You can message us. I believe it's sheriff at regraderequest.com or hosts at regraderequest.com. I'm sure that I can't remember if mine is Will or McBurney. But either way. You know, subscribe to us on the feed of your choice. Uh, I use Google Podcasts myself, but if you use iTunes or Spotify or something cool I haven't heard, I Stitcher, I know still exists, then, you know, use that too. But with that, take care, have a great evening, and watch for Falling Goats. Goats.